<clears throat> people are asking if I'm going to talk about what uh, happened this last week as our trip in Poland. I'll be doing that next week. Um, in, in a nutshell, we saw the worst of humanity to the best of humanity, and we'll bring you up to speed, maybe show you a couple little videos, but uh, uh, yeah, I want to bring you up to speed next week. Because what I want to do today, being Easter Sunday, I want you to imagine, if you can, being there when Jesus died. Putting on those, you know, uh, Mr. Dress-Up imaginary thinking caps with me, and trying to put ourselves into that place. And you got to think about it, because these guys and gals watched their best friend and teacher being nailed to a cross. They witnessed his pain when he cried out, I thirst, and when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They listened. As finally he bowed his head and he said, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was the duty of a family member to close the eyes and to kiss the cheek of the dead. And when Jesus died, this actually became the duty of two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They themselves went to Pontius Pilate and they begged for the body of Jesus. And then they had to take him down off the cross, which was not an easy chore because first they had to get a, rig a ladder system. They had to climb up the side of the cross. They had to pull his hands off the nails. And there was no way they could get those spikes out of the wood, not from that angle, not with his hands in between the wood and the head of the nail. Once the hands were loosened, they allowed the body of Jesus basically to sag into a sheet. They would close his eyes, they would kiss his cheek, they would place a cloth over his face. Others watched as the body was taken from the cross and buried and in that moment, you got to think about it, all your hopes and dreams are being buried with him. And as they walked away from that tomb, no doubt they walked in silence. And so all you would hear is the muffled sounds of sadness and sniffles, crying. And it must have felt like a huge ball of lead in the pit of their stomach. I'm sure people were walking away thinking that it's over, the end of a dream. It was only three years short, and now it's done. Those three days probably passed like an eternity. For three days, the Jewish leaders, as well as the Roman government, congratulated themselves as, on their brilliant scheme. But it's on that third day. That something wonderful, that something miraculous happened as God the Father said to an angel in heaven, go. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went into the tomb, and they found the stone rolled from the tomb. The first day of the week, early in the morning. I still got jet lag. I was up like at 4.35 o'clock. I know what early in the morning is all about. But here we have the scriptures telling us very clearly that the women made their way along the path to his tomb, trying to figure out who's going to roll away the stone for them. But when they arrived, they found that the stone had already been rolled away. An unexplainable phenomenon when they went in, they didn't find the body of Jesus. 
And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. How do you explain that? These otherworldly creatures, right? Maybe it was a UFO, as some would say. The, the women were terrified. They bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, he said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Angel told him, he says, look, at you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking for Jesus among the dead. He's not dead. He's alive. He is risen, even as he said. He's risen, and that's what we celebrate this morning. When all the evidence is in, we're convinced that Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead, and what a difference his resurrection should make in our lives. And so what do the women do? They go back and they tell the men, the guys are all hiding behind closed doors. They're fearful. These, the words that the women bring almost seem like a cruel joke to them. They didn't believe what the women had to say. Well, why not? Because the testimony of women was not respected in the culture at the time. And yet it would have been more likely if the account of the resurrection was, you know, first reported by a man or by one of the 12 disciples. You know, people would have at least thought then, uh, you know, they were concocting some incredible lie about Jesus' resurrection. But no, it was the women who were blessed with the delivery of the message. Peter got up, obviously he ran to the tomb. He stooped in, he looked in, he saw the grave closed there by themselves. He went home amazed at what happened. The, the word there for amazed is wonderment. And it's kind of interesting because we had doubt, right? This is a cruel joke, and now you have Peter's response, which is one of wonder. And, and we are here this morning because of an unexplainable phenomenon. And there's one fact that everybody agrees on. Followers and skeptics alike agree that Jesus' body uh, disappeared. But what's the explanation? And again, there are two different perspectives. Doubt and wonder. Many times you and I can look at the same F evidence, but we can respond in two different ways. Some of us respond from the doubt side, right? Maybe, you know, we are skeptical of everything. We're constantly um, thinking that there has to be some sort of logical explanation. Everything needs to fit properly. After all, you know, we feel that, um, you know, if we can't explain it with our mind or measure it by our five senses, well, then it can't be real. And then there are those who respond from the wonder side, those who are open to unlimited possibilities, always open to the unexplainable. And they understand that you can't possibly explain everything with our limited experiences and understanding. So both of these sides, doubt and wonder, they're actually in all of us. Everyone has both of these, right? We all do. And we can either choose to act consciously or subconsciously from one or the other. And if you're primarily acting out of your doubt side, and then you try to understand God through your five senses of your mind, it can be a little bit confusing. So the women came to the disciples, and they 
confronted them with the story of the resurrection. And what is the response? The response is very clear. It doesn't make sense. People just don't get up and walk out of tombs. And when we use the expression, it doesn't make sense, we are saying that it doesn't compute according to my five senses. And that's where the word sense comes from. If you can't smell it, see it, taste it, touch it, hear it, you know, it can't be real. And when we try to deal with God by evidence, we're trying to relate to God with our mind, we're trying to relate with our logic. And for those of you with kids, please remember to pray for Carl and Beatrice. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> oh, your boys are fun. I have so much fun with them. Sarcasm is also my love language with children. <laughs> you think about kids. They ever come to you and ask you to help them with their homework? Right? Especially math. I hated that as a parent, personally. Sorry. When they started in the fifth and sixth grade math, I was lost. That's true pastoral confessions. I couldn't keep up anymore. I had to ask your brother. I don't know how he got through it, but you can ask him. Definitely by junior high, I was out of the picture. I'll get you a tutor. I don't care what it costs. Um, I'm not there for you. Now, if I can't understand junior high math... How am I going to understand God? Right? And yet it's Jesus who says you need to become like children. Did you see the fascination in their eyes today? Children are born with wonderment, aren't they? I was playing with a couple over there during the worship, and they were coloring, and they had their little Easter bunnies, and I was doing my fingers, and they were watching and coloring and guarding their paper from the stranger danger pastor. But there was this wonderment that this hand sort of comes to life in a mind of its own. It's interesting. When a child is born, faith is the easiest thing in the world for them. They live out faith in God. There's these unlimited possibilities. If you ask a little kid what they want to be when they grow up, it's amazing the responses you get. There are no limitations, right? But the older we become, the more narrow and the more limited we become in our faith. So what has happened to us? We become narrow and limited in our perspective. Why? Because of what we're told. You can't do that. If you're told the world is flat, you start acting like the world is flat. You begin to live in a very limited and narrow world. No one ventures too far from home or you're going to sail off the end of the planet, right? When you think about it, then it also is going to affect the economy. It affects everything until somebody comes along and shatters that paradigm. We've only understood, for most of us, that it's been 500 years that the earth has not been flat. Everybody said it couldn't be done. So for a thousand years, over a thousand years, nobody ran a four-minute mile. Now, you joggers should know what I'm talking about. I watch four-minute miles. I don't run them, okay? I just watch them. The only way I'm going to do a four-minute mile is if I blaze on my feet and I can skate across ice. That's the only way it's going to happen. But you think about it. 
Somebody steps up and actually shatters the paradigm. Roger Bannister broke that mark. Even his most ardent rivals breathed a sigh of relief when he did that. At last, somebody did it. Somebody set the record. And once they saw that it could be done, 46 days after Bannister broke the record, John Landry, an Australian runner, broke the barrier again with a time of 3 minutes and 58 seconds. Then just a year later, (coughs) (coughs) sorry, it's not COVID. I had that thing at the airport stuck up my nose. And I came back clean. Uh. You think about it. Landry does it in a time of 3.58. And then a year later, later, three other runners broke the four-minute barrier in a single race. Over the last half century, more than 1,000 runners have conquered that barrier that had once been considered hopelessly out of reach. It was believed that no one under six feet tall could ever dunk a basketball. Neither can us over six feet tall, just saying. (laughs) Never mind win a slam dunk contest that everybody said it couldn't be done. Then came along this gentleman by the name of Spud Webb, who was five foot seven inches tall, who won the NBA slam dunk contest. Easter is about a shattered paradigm. Peter looked at these empty body wrappings. He went, well, if God can do that, then that changes everything. If God can do that, then anything is possible. Easter is about the power of faith. It's not about defining God or life by what we can explain. It's about living from the unexplainable. And researchers who don't even believe in God have done scientific experiments with what? Prayer. Go figure. And they've had a control group that only gets medical treatment. And then another group that has Christian people who come in. People who believe in the power of prayer. And they lay hands on people and they begin to pray for people. And then the difference between the two groups in healing is actually documented as incredible. Like how do you explain that? Well, you can't explain a miracle and that's the point. I don't understand junior high math. How am I going to explain a miracle? But if God can do what God did on Easter, then God can do anything. And literally nothing is impossible with God. And so what do you do when you find yourself in a hopeless situation? You've tried everything that you know to do. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering what to do in a hopeless situation. Many people actually pray. And usually our prayer is found in two words. God help. God help. I'm sorry, but that sounds like an act of faith to me. You live out of doubt. You cry out to God that if God can do this, then anything is possible. What do you do? You act out of your wonderment. See, I don't know what you're living through today. But I want to encourage you this morning, don't sit in your doubts. What did Peter do? 
you know, 10 other disciples just sort of sat, or nine, 10 disciples just sort of sat there and thought this was a cruel joke. Peter had doubt, but he didn't sit. Got up and he ran, ran to the tomb. And I think that that's what we're called to do. We are called to run to the tomb, act out of our wonderment, act on the unexplainable, and then experience the miracle. God takes that impossible, he makes it possible for us. And a lot of people will think, hey, I have all this doubt. I wish I could believe, Jerry, sure. But I have more doubt than faith. Faith is not the absence of doubt. I have doubt every day of my life. That's why I like reading in Mark chapter 9, a man came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him, but if you can do anything, will you please take pity on us and help us? If you can, said Jesus. If you can? Everything is possible for the one who believes. You hear that? You see it? It's like in words on the screen in front of you. Jesus says, don't act out of your doubts. Act out of your wonderment. I love what the man said because I relate to this guy. This is actually one of my favorite passages of all scripture. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Can you relate to that today? That belief and unbelief are in all of us. But he chose to act on his belief. And what does Jesus do? He heals his son. And it's not a matter of how much faith you have. Some of you are probably thinking that doubt is so much bigger in your life than faith. Jesus said this. He said, if you have the faith of only the size of a mustard seed, a tiny seed, you'll be able to say to whatever mountain is standing in your way, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. It doesn't matter if most of your makeup is doubt. Everyone has at least a tiny bit of faith. Your presence here today says that you believe that the resurrection is even a possibility, even if you're just making a family member happy by being here. Well, let me just say this. If you take that little bit of faith, that little bit of faith that you have, and you act on that faith and not your doubt, according to Scripture, anything is possible. For nothing is impossible with God, absolutely nothing. And so what about the evidence of the tomb? What do you say about that? There's simple testimony from people like Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that was born a few years after Jesus died. He records this. He says, 
Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, he drew over to him both many Jews. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Suetonius was a Roman historian. I've talked about him before. He mentions the persecution of the Christians and makes reference to the fact that these people who were punishment and inflicted upon were a class of men given to a new mischievous superstition, that being the resurrection. Pliny the Younger, he wrote letters to Emperor Trajan in 106 AD describing the fact that Christianity was recognized as a threat to public order. And Pliny had to know something about it in order to fulfill his duties. And it's, here, it's actually therefore likely that while his knowledge of Christianity itself was largely secondhand, he also had firsthand knowledge of basic facts such as Jesus' existence. More important, however, is the testimony of Pliny that Christians died for their faith because this was extremely unlikely to happen if Jesus did not exist. Now, the skeptical mind will, will say that although there are many writers of history during the life and times of Christ, there are only two records around this period. One is the Scriptures. But the other is that of Josephus. One of the reasons there are not many documents regarding the resurrection is because at the time there was no need for other documentation because the writings of the scripture were throughout the land. And so let me be clear that the Pharisees would have certainly not been promoting the writings of the resurrection of Jesus. No, the Pharisees went to great lengths to prevent any possibility of fraud in the matter of Jesus' resurrection. They felt that they had better knowledge of the promise of the resurrection than the disciples themselves did. And they didn't want any possibility of any fraudulent attempts on the part of the disciples to gain credibility by stealing the body. And then they would claim that it had been raised from the dead. They went to great pains after the resurrection of Jesus to try to hush it up. Because <coughs> they knew if the facts of the matter were broadcast... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> they knew that there would be no controlling the people as they turned towards Jesus and away from them. And as the disciples went into the city to proclaim the joyful news of the resurrected Christ, the man appointed to watch the grave to prevent this very thing went to report to their masters. And again, after the resurrection and the ascension into heaven, the Jewish rulers still tried to restrain the idea that Jesus had arisen from the dead. And if all that is true, it makes logical sense that there would have been a lack of evidence. And here's something that most people have really never considered. If the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus were not true, then why during the early centuries is there no documentation disproving these events other than maybe some writings that the body of Jesus was stolen? 
Why did those who were against Christianity make sure that the body was not stolen from the grave? Why didn't the opponents of Christianity produce Jesus' body to prove that the Christians were deceived? Why was there not writings proving that there are those who claim to have seen Jesus in a resurrected form were off the wall or that they were just simply mentally ill? Why was there no documentation by the opponents refuting the details that are documented in the scripture. See, it isn't until after a few thousand years that the validity of the Bible is being questioned. And then there is more archaeological proof every day proving the validity of scriptures. And we already looked at some of that in our previous series of Ask Anything. And if the disciples died horrific deaths for believing in the resurrection of Jesus when they actually hid his body... They were nuts, insane. (coughs) Sorry. They would be insane enough to die for a lie. That's literally what it is. And there should be so much documentation on how crazy the disciples were after Jesus' death. And let's, let's be honest, there's plenty of dirt on historical figures. So the resurrection of Jesus is more than just another amazing fact because it has enormous, enormous practical implications for our life in this world and beyond the grave. Listen to Jesus on that first Easter morning. He's talking to the women because these women were the ones who showed up at the tomb. The men were somewhere else because they had more important things to do, like hide and save their skin. They were terrified. And what does Jesus say? He says, go tell my brothers there to go to Galilee and that I will appear to them there. What does this mean? Jesus says, if you want to experience truth, first you have to do what I say, and then you're going to see. And what do we say? We say, well, can't you just give me a sign, like, you know, lifting me off the floor in a chair or something, like, you know, whatever. You know, show me first, and then I'll do what you say, Jesus. Show me first, and I'll do what you say. But it doesn't work that way. So if we really want to know the truth, and that becomes a question maybe that I have to ask some of you personally. First, we have to do what Jesus says. Once we become obedient in that way, and then we experience the evidence of the resurrection in our life. Knowing the truth in today's day and age means that we have to take spiritual initiative. You and I have to first do whatever it takes or costs. Look at we're going to die soon. Eh, Welcome to church. Life goes by quicker than we can ever imagine. You're 23 years old right now and you live to a life expectancy. You're going to have 60 plus years left. If you're 70 years old, sorry to tell you, but you got maybe 10 years and that's not much time. How do any of us in this blink of an eye that we call life have time for anything else but to pursue truth and take initiative for what God wants to do in our life. And I believe it's time for us to get up off our rears and do what we know, not what we feel. Remember the movie, The Matrix? I can almost bend over. Morpheus, 
He's got a great line in the movie. Now, Morpheus represents sort of like a prophet of God in the movie, and he hits the nail on the head in, in his comics to young Neo, right? And what's Neo doing? Neo is seeking truth, and what does Morpheus do? He uses this great line. He says the difference between knowing the path. There, there is a difference between knowing the path and walking in it. Right? How many years have you known the path? How many years have you now made a commitment to walk the path? You see, there's a difference between knowing and walking the path, and no one can teach me this. No one can do this for me because Jesus has come from the grave. That absolutely changes everything, and this is the basis of all reality. I must take initiative and make the commitment to live in a dangerous proximity to the one who has come from the grave. And then there's Thomas, the guy that, a disciple of Jesus that we call Tom, Doubting Thomas. And on that first Easter, when Jesus appeared to all the disciples behind closed doors, Thomas was not there. Today, if Thomas was in this crowd, he'd be a major annoyance, just saying. He'd probably stand up and say, wait a minute, Jerry, I, I, I'm not going to believe this just because you say this. Other people can just sit around and have a comfortable belief and they accept it. That's fine. That's fine. That, uh, that someone hands down from on high because my grandmother or my mother or my father, but I'm not going to believe this until I can see it for myself. And I'm not taking somebody else's word for it unless I can come into dangerous proximity with the one who came from the grave. Unless I touch the nail holes with my hands, I'm not going to believe it. Life is short. In the blink of an eye, we will stand face to face before God. And we each faced with a question. What have we done with Jesus? Today is not a funeral. Mm -mm. The body is not there. And when the body is not there, it messes the funeral up entirely. This changes everything. If you want to know the truth, then it's time to take a spiritual initiative, taking responsibility for becoming the person that God has created you to be. And so how do we do that? Well, the Bible says three very simple things. First, we have to repent. We heard that in the kids' lesson today. To repent literally means to do that 180, to change, to go in the opposite direction of where you've been heading. I've been going this way. I've been focused on my goals. I've been focused on my agenda, but no more. Because the body is moved, because uh, that is the basis of all reality, I am turning my back on my agenda. I am going to go the other way. My goals, my tameness, my sameness, right? My conditioning, my cultural cloning. I'm going to go the other way. I am going to move towards the voice of the risen Lord who calls us. And so to repent means to turn our back on everything that is not of God and walk towards the one who has come from the grave. The second is to believe. The Bible says that those who believe in Jesus are going to find life. Listen, belief is not the absence of doubt. See, I can relate to the guy in the Bible who came to Jesus and asked him to heal his son. What does he say? Anything is possible for the one who believes. Guy's response, again, 
I believe, but help my unbelief. All of us in this room have some faith and some doubt. We all do. If you, if you don't, you're dead. Just saying. You may want to check for a pulse. Jesus says it only takes the faith of a mustard seed, the size of a mustard seed. And if you have that much faith, if you focus on that kind of faith of what God has done in Jesus Christ, then you can say to any obstacle that stands in your way, get out of my way. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. Repent. Believe. And the third thing is do. Every decision or action that you and I make in life will be based on what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do I take responsibility for who I am becoming as a spiritual person? Remember, it's one thing to know the path. It's a whole other thing to walk it. And so repent, believe, and do. Do is being obedience to the scriptures. Again, over and over again. How many times have I said obedience is God's love language? The fact of the matter is he's created you. If you go back to Ephesians 2.10, he has created you. You are a piece of work. Some of you are going, yeah, I know, especially the person next to me. Yes. Translation, masterpiece. You are each a masterpiece. Each of us, when created, are a masterpiece. And that God has plans for us that he's created in advance for you and I to do. Do I take responsibility for who I am becoming a spiritual person? Do I realize that I have amazing potential? Each and every one of us in this room does. And when death is reversible, as Jesus proved it is, anything can happen. This week, my prayer for everybody here and watching on TV. TV, yeah, sure, maybe next year. Online, on their TVs. I pray, listen to my words. I pray this for you. Soul Sanctuary. That the Holy Spirit of God will shatter your paradigm of life. And it's not a matter of how much faith you have. It's a matter of living out the faith side and allowing God to do a resurrection in your relationships, in your places of work, in your places of school, in your life. And if you're new around here and you're wondering what this guy's pontificating about up on stage, we want to encourage you to put your hands in the life of Jesus Christ. At the very least, just keep coming back to Seoul for the next few Sundays. Keep asking questions to those who have brought you. Maybe you just showed up on your own. Well, then book an appointment with us in the office. We'd love to talk to you. You know, truth doesn't fear a challenge. If you really want to know if Jesus rose from the dead, keep asking and you will find out. God promises those who will seek find. Those who will ask will find. Those who will knock will get the door open to them. If you used to be on the right path spiritually, but you wound up in the ditch somewhere wondering how long the road back to Christ is, look at all you have to do is get up off your knees and turn around. 
And Jesus is right there saying, welcome back. He's going to help you get your life on track. But you have to turn it around. Take your hands. Please. Done this before. Open them in front of you with the palms up towards heaven. Go through your week. Go through your life. Begin to name those things that are heavy. Name those things that are all-consuming. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's a sickness. I don't know. What is it? What are you clinging to so tightly that you're afraid to let go of? Begin to squeeze your hands together. You feel the stress. You feel the tension. And when we look at Scripture, what does the risen Christ say to us? He says, let it go. And maybe you're clinging to the insistence that you're always going to be lonely. Maybe you've bought into the lie that life is always going to be like this. But let me say this, because of the resurrection, we are people of hope, so we don't have to buy into any of the lies and to say it's always going to be like this. Maybe you're married to somebody and you have this sense that your marriage is always going to be like this. But understand that the risen Christ wants to destroy that lie. And he says, your marriage can be better. Maybe you struggle with suicidal thoughts or have the sense of why should I keep going? On this Resurrection Sunday, let the risen Christ speak to you and tell you that you matter, that you're a masterpiece. Maybe you won't see it today, but one day you will. Maybe you struggle with some sort of addiction or compulsion that's just killing you and eating you from inside. And you have this sense, well, it's always going to be like this. What happens is that the risen Christ speaks to us and he says, let it go, because it's not true. It's not true. So maybe we just need to turn our hands over and open up and feel the release and let gravity do its work. And once we've just laid everything before the Lord, put our hands back up in a moment of surrender and say, Jesus, I just need you in the power, resurrection power to come and to do a work in my life. And I'll say this, to be a Christian is not just to say a prayer and everything is fine. It's to have an encounter with the risen Christ over and over and over again. This is why we gather weekly. This is why we gather in our life groups that Jesus lives in some sort of mystical beyond words sort of way. And he keeps appearing to his first followers as he appears to us. And he speaks to us about what we need to let go of. Maybe you lost a loved one recently, and you have a sense that you're never going to heal. The truth is, you'll never be the same, but you can heal. 
And so it's simply allowing the risen Christ to meet you and to bring you hope. Maybe you have a financial train wreck on your hands. The risen Christ speaks to you and says, look, there's hope. Maybe you've gone through a messy divorce and you're asking, am I ever going to get through this? The risen Christ speaks to you and he says, I am there with you. And for some of us, the risen Christ is convicting us of what we have held on to and we need to let go. And our hands are open, open to allow the risen Christ to place the things in them that we need, like healing, like stability, like blessing. Right? Maybe it's a path or a next step. Maybe it's a dream or a vision for a new kind of life. Maybe your prayer today with your hands open is, God, will you please put something new into my hands? And even a simple idea that is not always going to be like this. Let's take a moment of silence. Why don't you stand with me? Maybe you want to put your hands, palms up to him. Allow Jesus to speak to you. What is he saying to you? What is it that you need to receive from him today, this resurrection Sunday? The tomb is empty. And now we decide. If we want to experience this phenomenon, we need to choose to live our life on the side of faith. Is you that might you mightily raised your son Jesus from the dead. Death could not have a hold on him. And God, you sent your son into this world. For some reason, we think it's a story with a happy ending. And the truth is, is that this story doesn't end. It continues through the lives of the disciples, through the early church. This story went on through the Middle Ages and the Reformation. And it continues right now, right here in this moment, that Jesus is alive and lives and he lives and he breathes as we live and breathe today. So give us the eyes to see the risen Jesus in one another. Help us to live as the body of Christ and give us the strength and endurance to walk on making a difference in this world in which you've placed us. Father, banish fear and discouragement and moodiness from our lives. Wash away the dirt, the grime on our souls. Freshen our spirit as a spring rain freshes this earth, especially this week. And give us strength to live as you want us to live. Rivet our attention on the ultimate reality of Christ's final triumph over death. And never let us forget or fail to feel universal glory that you have given. That you've given Jesus a name 
that is above every name and make this practical in our daily lives as we see every person, both great and small, facing someday the risen and triumphant judge of all the nations. Give us a brokenhearted boldness in the mercy and might of Jesus. And God, for those who today may say, I want your hope, I need it. May they receive it today as they call out to you that Jesus, you died on the cross for me and I receive my forgiveness for my sins. Wash me clean, make me new. And I give you my life. Help me to follow you every day. Lead me, guide me, make me your own and resurrect me from the dead and make me new in Christ. Father, I believe we want our lives to count for the display of your greatness. So may you work this in us to the end with all your might, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Our offering challenge is, is actually a big one. Our care point that we support in East Watini called Manguanini is a place, and I've talked about it before, but in case you haven't heard, Sharon and I went to South uh, Africa and we went into the kingdom of East Watini, formerly known as Swaziland. There we came upon a care point whereby children are being sold for sex so the family could eat. We have taken over to ensure those kids are fed so that this wouldn't take place. It costs us $1,000 a month to do it. 12 months. I would love for us to raise 12 grand here today. On top of that, when I was in Poland, I got a message from Ukraine from a very good friend of mine. Not Pastor Sergey. He came to visit me. That's a whole other story. And I'll tell you what we did and how money is being distributed and everything else next week. Texting Bogdan, and I go, hey, what can we do for you? He says, I don't know if I can ask you this. I said, you can ask me anything. He says, we have guys who, they're not working because of the war, because there's, there's, there's no work. So what they've done is they've committed themselves to serving in the church, and there's eight of them. And Bogdan has asked, can we pay them? I said, okay, that's great. How much, how much are you looking at? I just need a figure. Can you help me out? Eight guys for one month per person is $250 a month per person. He would like to see if we could pay them for two or three months. That's all he's asking for. You can do the math. So that's where our Easter offering is going. East Swatini. And again, specifically to give these guys who are literally risking their lives going to places to deliver food and supplies. I've seen two vehicles. One was blown. They were leaving Bucha. The shelling came at them. The Russians were shelling them. It blew out the back windows, filled with shrapnel. All the side windows were blown out. All he had was his windshield. Another guy, machine gun bullets right across the front of the car. This is what they're going in, under the banner of Christ. You want to go? But they're there. Let us help them be God's hands and feet. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. So if you want a blessing, put your hands in the air. Likewise, the one who blessed did it as well. May God the Father 
the one who brought Jesus back to life and the one who has the power that brings us to life and the Holy Spirit who sustains us. May they send us out from this place of worship for a time of celebration to live lives of hope and to be nurturers of the vision of wholeness and to serve as healers in this wounded world. And may Jesus Christ keep you and strengthen you this day and forevermore. Why? Because he is risen. Amen. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.